Danny. Danny, thank you so much for having me back. And it's a joy to be back. And I believe you put a spell, a good spell, uh, on the journey of Boy Swallows Universe about two years ago. And um, I've never, ever forgotten uh, how kind and generous you were to have me on early on um, when Trent Dalton and the world of uh, literary fiction were, were pretty strange to each other. And uh, I was very touched that you took the time of day and I'm, and it's so cool that you took the time of day again. I feel like I'm part of the Words and Nerds family. You guys are so amazing and lovely and such a family of amazing literary lovers and creators and people who advocate. Oh, thanks so much for your questions engaging with the novel and for everything you're doing. I know the podcast is hugely, hugely loved, so um, you're a gem. I think it's awesome the work that you do you know, we're out there in this pool of, of like how many writers there are in this country and we're all trying to get our book to the surface. Podcasts like this enable us to do that and also to talk about our craft. Danny, you're a gift from heaven. I love that you're such a great supporter and advocate for not only kids' books but adult novels too. I love your interviews across the board. Kudos to you, Danny, for, uh, for getting everyone to relax so much that they open up and tell you such interesting things for the benefit of your listeners. So, well <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Yeah, well done. That's so true. Oh my gosh, I just told you all these things that I've never talked about before. I could never edit that bit out. I could do this. And I was just so comfortable that I was like, I'm all this stuff. It's a special knack. Who wouldn't want to celebrate this fabulous podcast? listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. On this podcast, we chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. I'm your host, Danny V, and today I'm super excited to welcome Danielle Binks for the second time to the podcast, writer, reviewer, agent, book blogger. Danielle's debut middle grade novel was a CBCA notable book for younger readers for younger children in 2021, shortlisted for the Readings Children's Book Prize in 2021, and longlisted for the Indie Book Awards in 2021. Very impressive. And today we're going to talk about The Monsters of Her Age, and it's your debut YA novel. Welcome back hi thank you for having me do i get a t-shirt for this being my second time around do i get like a tote bag anything i, I, I think so because i think i think i need more women in these t-shirts haven't seen many besides heck yeah. Yeah, that's so. cute. i'll wear the heck out of that All yes, right. please. you're in you're in <laughs> Nice. Thank you for coming back. I loved this book from the very first page. Aww. It was something I'd not read before. Like it was just wildly original. So can you start us off with an elevator pitch? Ah, elevator pitch, my favourite. Uh, <laughs> the Okay, so The Monster of Her Age is a young adult novel. It is about a young woman called Ellie Marsden who comes from a famous family of Tasmanian thespians. And her grandmother in particular is a bit of a scream queen and legend. She was in a schlock horror franchise as a teenager and the infamous Lottie Lovinger, Ali's grandmother, became a bit of a living legend in the Australian film history. So much so that when Ali was younger, she and her grandmother appeared in an indie horror movie together in which Ali played the child monster. And it transpires that she didn't have a great experience on the film set of Blood and Jacaranda, the movie. I can't imagine why. Oh. 
when has it ever gone wrong for children in Hollywood? In um, horror films. In horror films, <laughs> ever. Um, but when we meet Ellie, she is 17 years old and returning home to Hobart for the first time in many years because Lottie is dying and the family are all gathering around to send her off. They don't quite know when her end is going to come and because of their Jewish faith, they just have this ritual of coming and sitting vigil and being with her. And part of that for Ellie is trying to be with her grandmother who cannot speak to her, but she's trying to reconcile with all of their tumultuous relationship that stemmed from this movie. And while home in Hobart for the first time, Ellie meets a young woman who is one of the founders of a feminist horror film club out of the state cinema in Hobart. And that kind of sends her off on a journey of introspection into her role in the Australian film history, a fictional film history, I should say, and her role as the child monster, not not unlike Linda Blair in The Exorcist, <laughs> uh, and kind of healing her family and healing herself in a lot of ways as well. Mm. That's, that's the pitch. It's a great pitch. And I've got so many questions about all of those things. But for, before I hit you with them, were you a fan of horror films? Oh, my gosh. I love horror movies. Yeah, tell me your and, favourites. Oh, like... Okay, there is a reason why there is a quote from Linda Blair at the beginning of my book and the quote from Linda Blair who played Reagan in The Exorcist, the infamous infamous uh, spewing pea soup child. Head spinning. Yes, head spinning, yes. <laughs> the quote from Linda Blair is, The Exorcist has been a very interesting cross to bear, which I just think is sublime uh, mm. because she was a child actor in an incredibly intense role that was physically demanding, that had a huge demand on her post-production when she was being asked these really intense questions about faith and Satanism. And she was being stalked by people who thought that she was promoting Satanism to the world, wow. which is ironic because I think The Exorcist is one of those films that has probably created faith for a lot of people. It really made people believe in the devil and heaven and angels, etc. Mm. Uh, but no, Linda Blair had to cop a lot of that flack when she was a teenager and so I, I watched The Exorcist when I was far too young, way, like way too young. <laughs> I, 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 wasn't I was, I just have loved the thrill of horror mm. and The Exorcist is still one of my all time favorite horror movies. And it's one that I do try and watch when I'm home alone in the dark, at least once a year, oh my goodness. because I do still love, <laughs> yes, I do. I do still love the fact it's it's kind of like reading a really sad book where you cry in all the same moments or watching a sad movie you know terms of endearment I will cry at the exact same points every single time I kind of love the dependability of those jump scares it, it, there's something kind I of, do too but I love yeah. the the being in the the moment of watching the horror film but I don't like the afterwards so I went and saw Wolf yeah. Creek with my stepbrother Ooh. And, you know, it was a, we had a great time. It was terrifying. We, we were laughing because, you know, horror's, you know, got a bit of yeah. humour to it as well. Yeah. Everything was fine until I, I realised at the end of the movie, it was about midnight, I had to go home on my own. And I was like, oh, yeah. I didn't think this through. <laughs> so I made, I made my stepbrother follow me home and come into my house and oh check gosh. the cupboards. <laughs> okay, that is a visceral reaction. Isn't that... Um... Isn't that fascinating that horror is one of those genres that it plays over and over in your mind and when you're home alone at night in bed and your yep. your foot is peeking out from under the covers, you do snatch it back thinking, oh, geez, something's going to get me. Uh, I kind of love that feeling as well. But, yeah, I'm I'm a huge horror fan. It wasn't – I mean, there's a reason why she was a horror 
child actor because I did know the story of Linda Blair and I did know how fascinating that was and I'm a huge fan of Drew Barrymore Firestarter I, I yes. knew her background Firestarter. As well. that was wonderful yeah. I remember Stephen that. King yeah. Stephen King the master of horror um I do love the, the updated it chapter one and two movies um I'm I'm just a huge fan of horror so it wasn't hard for me to sit down and watch horror films um and yeah, I do love Guillermo del Toro. I love Devil's Backbone. I love a fantastic horror film from 2014 called It Follows, mm. which is making a horror movie out of sexual consent. Oh, um, interesting. Uh, yeah, because this is what horror does. Horror yeah. takes our fears and warps them and um, puts an allegory to them and has us play around with them so that we can examine them a little bit closer without being too, I think, um, scared at what we see when it's in the real contemporary world mm. you know there's something about putting that veil of horror over something that yeah. allows us to actually acknowledge what we fear and I think this is something that you know happens again and again the the brilliant film Get Out which is looking at it's been described as benevolent racism is looking at racism in America mm. um in a really interesting fascinating way so yeah I I love horror movies I love the Conjuring movies I love the Scream movies. Um, all of them, I can watch them for days on end and I do re-watch them constantly. I love that. I grew up on Nightmare on Elm Street and how much do I Freddy Krueger. Yes. I love Freddy Krueger. That is such a sublime concept. Mm. And clever um, too. I remember. I still remember a scene, can't remember which one it was, where the time just kept circling back and they mm-hmm. kept on being in the same spot all the time so they couldn't move forward. I yes. just thought... I thought it was clever and terrifying and also a little bit funny. It, it is funny. And I also remember it was at Johnny Depp in the bed where, yes. he, where the fingernails poke through and the claws grab him and sink him down into the bed. Yes. And I just thought, how hilarious is that? And I also know the backstory of Freddy Krueger is what really gets me. It's so scary and sick and the, and the insane asylum and, yeah, all of it. Freddy Krueger, mm. like, what a concept. Truly yeah. a horror film of the 80s that Absolutely. just lives on and on. Absolutely. I'm a fan. I'm, I'm actually really looking forward my kids, they're only very small at the moment, mm-hmm. but I can't wait till they're 15. I'm going to get out all of the Nightmare on Elm Streets. Maybe there's 13. I don't know how many. I'm yeah. just going to back to back <laughs> traumatise my children. I mean, is that not one of the reasons to have children is so they oh. can become teenagers and cool enough to watch those movies with that you was, finally? That was one of the reasons. The other reason was I really like making hats for hat parades. <laughs> yeah, no, fair enough. And, you know, CBC, CA Book Week is yeah. awesome. Oh, it's also yes. a really fun costuming one. I love nice. Book Week. So three reasons. I don't know if they're the best reasons, but they work for us. Uh, I think they tick many boxes. <laughs> Now, also with horror, and I wanted to talk to you about this, you've teamed the horror genre with feminism. I love, 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 love this. Please take me through this. So there is a feminist horror film club that Ali meets, and in particular one member of this film club called Rhea, whom gets her thinking about the fact that that horror could be seen through a feminist lens. Uh, One of the reasons Rhea puts forth is that horror was invented by a teenage girl. Uh, wow. the one and only Mary Shelley, the writer of Frankenstein. Yes. And, and, and you mentioned her in your book. I do. I give a little shout out to one of my favourite authors and stories of all time, Frankenstein, uh, the modern Prometheus. Incredible. Uh, Ali's very dubious. She doesn't quite believe that horror, the modern horror genre, was invented by a disenfranchised t- teenage girl. But 
um, Rhea says, oh, no, 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 it was. Uh, Mary Shelley was 19 years old when she went to that house party on Lake Geneva and Lord Byron put it to the test of the room and said, who can write the best ghost story? And Lord Byron undoubtedly did this because he wanted to mock uh, poor Mary and make her believe that she was far less superior to all the male writers in the room. But that night uh, Mary went off and you know, some sort of amalgamation of a nightmare and a dream and memories of a frog leaping that she'd been to see and this madman who promised they could bring a frog from death to life. All of this went into the modern Prometheus and our girl Mary at the age of 19 wrote the first non-religious creationist myth and completely upended the mores of society at the same time. Uh, She had to publish under a false identity to begin with and then was revealed to be the author and for many years people believed that it was actually her husband Percy who wrote it and she was lying about being the author of Frankenstein because it had been so incendiary it had been so popular from the get-go it had been such a um a lightning strike of an idea from the first moment they couldn't believe a 19 year old woman had done this let alone a 19 year old woman who was uh outcast from society you know, she and Percy had an illicit affair. Um, she had lost her child um, because of their poverty, largely. And, you know, if you know all this, you can read a lot of grief in yeah, that book. Absolutely, yeah. You can read it's it. It's about you know. life and death and bringing life back. Yeah. And so when you find out about her lost child, it sort of puts all the pieces together that she's really exploring totally. that. It, yeah. You know, as a mother, it's her asking the question, if yeah. you could, yeah. if you could control life should you yeah and it's it's very interesting that she that she has much side eye for the hubris of man who chooses to for all perhaps the wrong reasons but you know when you know that background to mary shelley you do you see that frankenstein is a novel of great grief for the Mm. author and that you couldn't you couldn't get to such a profound thought experiment without that kind of heartache behind Mm. it absolutely you know it's 100 true she was a 19 year old woman when she wrote that and she completely change science fiction and horror as we know it it's amazing I, don't think, I love it I don't think she always gets her dues I don't mm. think she always gets her dues for that but she should and everyone I think should read Frankenstein at least once in their life and I'm wondering why haven't I been invited to one of those Lord Byron parties they sound amazing oh I think he was a bit of a blowhard but he had <laughs> he had nice estates I mean he had I just like the idea sitting around maybe drinking some absinthe and talking yeah. about like the best horror films or no, not films but horror ideas like yeah that's amazing. I think that is very true I also found it really interesting that the reason they were at this house party and kind of secluded because it was raining for eight weeks was because oh, wow. um, a year before there'd been a huge volcanic eruption and it had set the whole world's weather patterns askew. So it literally did rain for eight weeks straight. And Lord Byron, God, I couldn't think of a worse person to be stuck inside <laughs> for eight weeks than Lord Byron with, with scant few women or men to uh, put his amours on. And so, of course, he just turned to, like, nitpicking at Mary Shelley and all the other people in the room. I just think he would have been an absolute blowhard. And I think I say as much in the book. I do. <laughs> I, I have Rhea say that Lord Byron was an absolute blowhard. The and same way. that isolation, yeah. right? I think I've been wasting my, my current lockdown and not telling ghost stories and just like having midday baths and stuff. I think I've been wasting it. Hey, whatever got you through <laughs> lockdown, speaking as a Melbourneian, whatever got you through lockdown, <laughs> lean into it. Um, it's the bath. The bath's getting me through <laughs> every day. No, but- 
<laughs> you know, the, the question being what makes horror feminist, it's not necessarily always feminist, but, you know, as the character of Real also says, it's also kind of anti-feminist to assume that just because something is gory and bloody and scary and, you know, this kind of anti-feminine, I say in quotation marks, doesn't mean that it's not feminist. The same way that women aren't just meant to enjoy Jane Austen adaptations, you know. Um, and it must be said, the horror film genre is perhaps the one genre that has reignited many a, an ageing starlet's career later in life. Um, whatever happened by to Hollywood Jane? standards, ageing yeah. is, what, 35? Yeah, precisely. So, like, <laughs> something like something like Whatever Happened to Baby Jane totally reignited um, a genre space for older actors once upon a time, and it still does that. The fact that Sigourney Weaver and Jamie Lee Curtis can still yes. loom so large in this genre um, and still come back for more and more sequels because people just love them, is it's kind of incredible. And it is perhaps the one genre that puts women's fears under the microscope and has audiences rooting for them to be overcome and to be the sole survivor at the end of a horror movie, hence why there is a term called the final girl, mm. which is the last one left standing in a horror film, generally is a woman. So I I totally embrace the horror genre. Not every single instance, no. There are some that are absolutely schlocky and terrible and, and misogynistic, absolutely, but I don't see horror as being inherently anti-feminist. I think there's a lot more to explore in there. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you, and I'm a big horror fan as well, and and a big Jane Austen fan. So you know, we can we can be anything. Me too. <laughs> Me too. I, I, you know, we hold magnitudes. Let's just oh, ma- multitudes rather. We hold <laughs> multitudes. Let's just embrace that. Absolutely. Now we just I just want to circle back a little bit to grief mm-hmm. because when I read, I put it on Twitter last night. It was just something that really, you know, something that really resonates with you. And I, I love reading people's acknowledgements. I feel like I'm getting a little insight into your brain. <laughs> I don't know how many people read them. I always read them. I, I always flip to the acknowledgements first. Are you kidding? Always. It's like, what's inside their brain? Who are they thanking? What's yeah. happening? So, I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that you do this too. Yeah, I totally definitely. do that. I love it. I love it. I, I find them really personal. I quite like yeah. that sort of open because you know it's, writing books very hard, and I, I find that sort of at the end that grateful thanking and really pouring your heart out. I really like them. Anyway, I digress. Um, you had a quote that said, "Grief is the price of love." Yeah. And wow, it just got me in the heart, stabbed me in the heart. I put it on Twitter because I just loved it. Tell me about this quote, where you found it, what it means to you. Oh, it's a quote from Queen Elizabeth. And being a Republican, I did put it in there with a little bit of tongue in cheek. But, you know. (laughs) It's a great quote, though, no matter who said it. You know, she said it. She said it well. Um, That came about because a lot of this book is about grief and trauma to a large degree. And more than anything, I think what happens in this book is... You know, I tend to think that pop culture gets grief wrong. It gets it it kind of portrays grief as point A to point B to point C to point D at the end point and you'll be fine at the very end. But grief is ongoing and it never stops. It's constantly ebbing and flowing and it takes on new forms. It grows around us. Um, at one point, I think Ellie kind of akins it to being a weed that grows around us, you know, forms around us. And I kind of wanted to get that across also the fact that grief is not one note you know love can be wrapped up wrapped up in grief as can anger as can hurt and trauma um and that's something that ellie is very much coming to grapple with because she loved her grandmother very dearly and she's losing her throughout the course of this novel but she's also having to come to grips with the fact that she's still angry at her 
and we'll never get closure from that. So, yeah, I just found it very interesting that the way we talk about grief and love is often as this endpoint, yes. you know, getting to this destination. But it's really, it sounds cheesy, but it really is a journey and an ongoing journey that yeah. never ends. I agree with you. And I find it very odd when people say, oh, you know, you'll you'll get over it or it's just time because, you know, when you lose someone that's been very close to you, that grief never goes away. It does take different forms. It does get easier in mm. some ways, I think. Um, that's been my experience, but it never goes away. You know, when I had this conversation with my mum when her sister passed away, you know, she said, oh, when's it going to get better? And I said, it's probably not. No. No, because she's always going to be that hole in your life and it's an awful thing to say, but you're always going to feel it, you know. And I think as a, as a culture we, we kind of do grief really poorly. We do grief um, absolutely apparently and, you know, it's really weird because last year we were all going through a collective trauma and some of us more than others, Yes. some people during lockdown and during COVID, um, socioeconomic status especially really made COVID and pandemic harder for some people and easier for others. You know, it's, it's a cliche again, but the rich got richer and the poor got poorer and it's not fair. And all of that was a collective grief and trauma we were going through. And I say that as someone who was in 115 days of lockdown being in Melbourne, yeah. um, and that was something that we all had to come to terms with. And I think somebody did say, probably on Twitter, and I hate to quote Twitter, <laughs> somebody did kind of lay it out and say that feeling you're feeling is grief. Mm. It's a kind of grief for the yes. life that you that hasn't transpired now, that will never come back again now. Mm. Um, maybe it's a grief for the family who you're disconnected from by, you know, oceans because you cannot reach them currently. Maybe you lost somebody. Um, you know, it, it took on many, many forms. And last year I got really into watching this YouTuber called Caitlin Doherty, who is um, a mortician who works out of California. And she is what she calls death positive she wants to talk about death and grieving with people mm -hmm. and she is a particular proponent of green death she doesn't believe in um, casket burials because that's putting a lot of pollution into the earth that will never break down she doesn't believe in cremation either because that's putting a lot of toxins into the air that will never um, you know that, that are going to harm the atmosphere she believes in green burials which is you know earth to earth in the most literal sense mm -hmm. it is a body in the ground in a shroud etc but she talks about the various cultures and how they celebrate grief or yeah. deal with grief and her takeaway is always that in the west we are the most repressed we are the worst. yeah we are the worst at talking about it we are the worst at signaling it we are the worst at talking just you know we are terrible 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 at it and we have a lot to learn from other cultures who get it maybe not perfect, but by golly, are they willing to explore themselves and put themselves out there and acknowledge that it is a kind of trauma mm. to be re-traumatised as well in, in your ongoing grief process. Yeah. So I, I completely fell in love with her channel, Caitlin Doherty, and I think she's brilliant and she's got a whole bunch of non-fiction books out there, including books wow. about how to talk to children about grief and dying, yeah. which I think is amazing. Mm, um, very and, yeah, probably all of that probably went into the monster of her age, undoubtedly, as did, you know, everything that I was going through last year. Mm, yeah, so interesting. So many things I want to talk about, about that because I think um, you know, I read this article that said that we, particularly in the West, when we deal with grief in, you know, not as positively as we could, we sort of just think we never think about death. We just think about living, 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 living. So when it hits us or when we lose someone or when we're faced mm. with it, we have no 
um, no background of understanding it or coming yeah. to terms with it. We kind of live like we're going to live forever. <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget when I was a teenager, I watched this documentary about the pink ribbon and breast cancer um, support, etc. And it was this documentary about how the pink ribbon has been co-opted by all these companies who are just pushing this, like, you know, they sell plastics and carcinogenics with that are pink for pink ribbon day for breast cancer awareness. And it's stuff that is actually cancerous and is leading towards more cancer in the community. Wow. Um, but it's been completely co-opted. And they interviewed these women who were at the end of their cancer journeys. They've been told you only have X amount of months to live. And they said the thing with the pink ribbon and breast cancer and most cancer awareness is it tells you to fight. Just keep fighting. You're going to beat this. You're going to overcome. And they said there's nothing out there for those of us who are not going to beat this. Mm. I just thought, wow, that's so true and so hard for them. And powerful, yeah. Wow. Really, and, they, and, you know, they really said there's nothing for us. Who are our community? So much of cancer awareness and you know fundraising for cancer research is about fighting it beating it you're going to overcome but for some people that's just not accurate and there's hardly any grief support out there for them on such a wide scale wow and you know that's something that I was also coming to terms with last year because throughout last year about in April um my uncle was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and by July he knew that it it wasn't going to work for him. He'd had a Whipple surgery, 11 hours on operating table, and then a month later they said it's already back. You've only mm. got to the end of the year. Wow. And, you know, being in Victoria, he was able to choose voluntary assisted dying, which he did in December. So we had a stranger-than-usual year on top of an already strange year. Mm. And I was just, it was a very strange, it was like we had this prolonged vigil for him. And all of that went into this book as well. And all of that was just like, you know, folds and layers of grief and trauma. And I'm really kind of proud, weirdly, that this book is a, is a very strange time capsule of a very strange time, mm. both for us as a as the world, but also for me and my family. It's a very strange time capsule and a little bit of a tribute. And I think it ultimately is a tribute to that Queen Elizabeth, God love the old dame. Uh, <laughs> that that quote of, you know, grief is the price we pay for love. Mm. So, you know, that all went into the book. Wow. Um, how and, it was right. <laughs> and you know what? From reading it, you can tell like it's it's a wild, like I said, wildly original story, and I really loved it. And I loved the the character of Lottie, but you could tell that there was a lot of stuff going on when it was writing. And you know, I did read that you wrote it in lockdown, etc. But just you telling that story, you know, looking back on reading it, like, yeah, you can feel that in the book. And I don't know, I feel like when people write books with a lot of heart and soul on the page or a lot of grief, I feel like that's that extra layer that you can feel when you can read it. Like I, I, oh, feel, so I feel that. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, I constantly say to kids when I do student workshops, I say, look, art changes people and people change the world. But this book taught me that it all works in reverse too. So, you know, it all comes out in the end. Oh, I love that. And still one of my favourite pieces of writing advice, you know, a lot of people talk about the technical way of writing and, you know, that's all very important. But I think after, you know, when I spoke to Trent Dalton about Boyce Wallows Universe and he just said, well, it's all about just putting your heart and soul on the page and being vulnerable. And I went, oh, that's, that's like a light bulb moment, you know, because you can have all the technical stuff in the world, but if you don't be vulnerable and put that heart and soul on the page, it's going to be lacking. It's just going to be technical words. You know, totally. And 
if I'm being completely honest, when I conceived this idea back in about probably September 2019, I had this idea that I wanted to write a fictional film history. I wanted to write a Linda Blair-esque character who was dealing with being everybody's worst nightmare from being their, <laughs> their worst nightmare in horror films. And I thought that was kind of kitschy and cool and isn't that funny? And I thought the year the maps changed, my first book was set where I live. It was set um, I had a protagonist who was my age in 1999, the same age I was. I put a lot of my family into that book to the to the point that my cousin said after reading it, geez, it's like sitting around our dinner table at a, at a family lunch on a Sunday. <laughs> I love like, that. Yeah, awesome. So in conceiving this book, I thought, right, I'm going to write a thespian Australian family, a fictional film history, and I'm going to set it in Tasmania as far away from me as possible. And then 2020 happened and literally... January 2020 the first thing that happened to me and my family was my grandmother passed away as well oh, wow. and then my uncle passed away and in between all that was the lockdowns and everything so I totally started out probably wanting to put distance between myself and a story and I just wanted to write a fun imaginative piece and then it just so happened that I couldn't do that I had to put a whole bunch of myself and my life and my family on the page again and I'm glad that I did yeah you know, it's kind so it of, is it is that little tribute I think I think that's really yeah. special I, I think I, I do truly believe that my stories are just going to follow me now. I, even if I declare I'm going to set it in Tasmania, <laughs> far away from I me. I love that. They, I love Hobart. Yeah, you did get a trip into Hobart with your dad, right? December 2019. Oh, lucky. I went on a little, little research trip. And then I was very lucky. My editor at Hachette is from Tasmania and she actually moved back from Sydney to Tasmania permanently. Oh, wow. So during the editing process, I got to email Karen Ward, my wonderful editor, and I got to get her to do things like, can you just walk around Battery Point and tell me how long it takes? Like, can you just time yourself? <laughs> and, and that was really great. And it was also that. great that as I was writing little destinations like Lovinger House, she could tell what it was based on in Hobart. Like oh. she could tell the real the real inspiration for it. And I thought, good, I want Hobart locals to know in a little wink, wink, nod, nod way what I'm writing. So that was that was wonderful. I love that. And I love how you, you started out, you know, new setting, new this, new that. And you know, it's probably good that it was set in an unfamiliar place because then all that personal stuff came together on top of it. That's, yeah. that's a great story. Now, I do love the idea of being immortalised on the screen or in art and you say the show will always be going on somewhere in the world for Lottie Lovinger and I think that's just so fascinating. Don't you think it's fascinating when art can immortalise somebody? I do and I think I wonder if it's also a little bit creepy. A little like, bit creepy, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> like, really, I do wonder if how it feels for a famous person, for their family to see them all over. You know, and, and I, I wonder that every time it's Heath Ledger's anniversary of his birthday or his death, and and I, you know, and everyone says the same thing about what would he have done now? He would have been so great, and he was so great in his time. And I just think, you know, I know he's got a, a little child, and I wonder how it must be for her growing up. We, you know, you know, it's, it's it's very morbid on the one hand, but is it also not beautiful that she gets to see her dad mm. as a young guy? in all of these roles that brought so much joy to people and he was so good in them. Mm. And, you know, I, I can't imagine it's anything other than wondrous to see him in something like Brokeback Mountain. Yeah. That was just what a film. ordinary. Yeah. What, like, extraordinary. What, an, what a film, what a film to come out at that time and to just shift an entire pop culture conversation. Yes. 
Like that's kind of amazing, but I'm sure it's also really weird for her as well. It's so interesting I, I want- because yeah, as a young girl, she probably doesn't know her father. And imagine mm-hmm. trying to find out who your father is through films when you're playing yeah. a fictional character. Like I imagine that could also be quite confusing. Really confusing. And then I think an, an even weirder angle and layer to this is that now we live with social media. So now as well as when famous people have their testament in film or TV or et cetera, there's also the other layer of them where they'll be forever on YouTube in various interviews or their social media accounts will go on forever. And that's a weird thing to think about as well, which is another part of maybe grief in the West that we haven't quite looked at yet is what happens to all those social media feeds when people start passing away and, Mm. you know, the legacy of them. So all these different layers to it, which is just another way of talking about the multimedia aspect of, you know, you can go on and on, which is also a little bit Black Mirror-esque, I guess. You know, this (laughs) idea of, you know, you live on forever immortalised and kind of freeze-framed in these roles that you had. So, yeah, I I was just layering all that on. And then... One of the reasons I thought that was really fascinating was I've said that I've got a huge crush on Drew Barrymore. I've always loved Drew Barrymore. And she comes from the famous Barrymore acting family. And one of my favourite ever pieces of trivia was that her great-grandfather, John Barrymore, who was this great film star from the silent era, he, when he died, a group of famous friends of his actually stole his corpse and played poker with it. Wow. It's like a weekend at Bernie's. Exactly. Wow. Drew Barrymore has been asked about this. She was asked to confirm if it really did happen, and she said yes. Wow. My great-grandmother's body really was stolen by the likes of Errol Flynn and et cetera to play one more hand of poker, and she said there is some rumour that Weekend of Bernie's was indeed inspired <gasps> by this legend. Wow. So I also just thought how weird that that's your family legacy. And wow. Like, like to the point that your, your great-grandfather was that famous that something like that happened to it. Like, it's just so weird. It's so wild. Yeah, all of that kind of went into me crafting this fictional film history and this loving a family and just thinking about how weird it is for people to be entombed mm. as starlets in their roles. Yeah, There's a lot happened. coming out of your head into this book, Danielle, like so much. <laughs> I know. And then add lockdown into that. It was just like, you know, on a hamster wheel constantly. I just introduced my kids to ET, loved it. Loved oh it. my gosh. And yeah. now, you know, there's a whole, I think Drew Barrymore has one of the best um, film filmographies to, to introduce kids to. Totally. Like she's, got, she's got a really great filmography yes. to go through. It's, yes. it's truly spectacular. Right up to, I think kids will enjoy the Charlie's Angels films. E.T. is undoubtedly in there. Firestarter should totally be watched. Um, yeah. po- Poison Ivy, maybe just like wait. <laughs> I might wait for Firestarter too. Yeah. But ET, they have, you know, my daughter actually said she's she's seven and she said, when can we watch ET again? And I'm like, any time. Anytime. And anytime. Kind of also point out, Drew Barrymore's one of her best properties that she's done recently was the Santa Clarita Diet television series <laughs> that was so freaking smart and funny and brilliant. And I'm so upset that it hasn't gotten another season. Santa Clarita Diet, um, where Drew Barrymore plays a zombie a flesh-eating zombie, that is all of my girlhood dreams come true. Are you kidding me? Yes. Yeah, and and teamed with uh, Timothy Oliphant. Oh. Like, what a team. Just perfection. Oh, just yes. the wittiest television series. <laughs> just really odd. I freaking loved it. <laughs> just give me Drew Barrymore flesh-eating Nazis. 
And I really thing. liked, yeah, I oh. really liked the loyalty of her husband. He finds out that she's eating, like, you know, she's he a adapted. zombie. He, he adapted. Made he made it work. He supported her. Like, that's that's true love, really. I mean, they were real. They were realtors and they made it really work, you know. <laughs> I, work. I salute. I'm keen, whoever wrote that, I'm keen to see whatever they do next because Santa Clarita diet was freaking amazing. Relationship goals. Yes. yes. <laughs> now, I just love how this conversation has gone on so many tangents. Um, questions, what questions? I just threw them away about halfway through. Danielle was like, we don't, we don't need those. They're boring. This is much better. So this has been a wild conversation. I can't wait to listen back and go, oh, we talked about horror films and Heath Ledger and then we went Freddy Krueger and then we went grief and then we went really deep and really sad and we met Drew Barrymore. Yeah. So- and, you know, threw in there a little anecdote about a stolen corpse playing poker. I mean, we get at Bernie's. Like it has everything. This episode, I was like, it all makes sense. <laughs> it all makes sense. It won't in the promo when I say all these things. <laughs> no, that's part of the beauty of it. If nothing else, can we make sure that there's very clearly a segment of Mary Shelley, oh, uh, yes. the, the 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 devotee that I am to yes. that incredible teenage girl. Yes. Yeah. No, I I am too. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Love it. And, and to think that you know it began with this 19 year old girl is mind blowing and wonderful, and more people need to know about that. So hopefully they do 100%. now. <laughs> yes. We are on a mission. Let's go. <laughs> it's a mission for a lot of things. <laughs> and I'm going to have one of those Lord Byron horror parties one day where we sit around <gasps> with candles in a, in a castle or something and just think about weird ghost stories. I think we need I to believe, do this. I believe absinthe was mentioned earlier on. It was. Yes, it I was. think it's needed. Yeah, the yeah. Green Fairy. Yeah. yeah. Candles, sure. absinthe, ghost stories, castle. I mean, I think I've just created the perfect dinner party. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you throw in like a game of Cluedo... <laughs> It'll be perfection. Go for it. <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. When we're out of lockdown, this is happening. Yeah. <laughs> I say yeah. I, I make a lot of plans on this podcast. <laughs> You're writing a lot of checks that you cannot cash. Yes, that is true. I'm planning going. a lot of I'm planning a lot of weed parties too. <laughs> keep going. I love it. <laughs> let's now, do like an exorcist watch party. Oh, yeah, yes. let's let's just do it. Yeah, yes. and I think we need snacks to match you know, match what we're watching. So gory sort of yeah, I shaped agree. snacks and things. That'd be cool. I agree. I love snacks. <laughs> Big fan of snacks. We're just hungry. We're just hungry. That's what this is now. <laughs> now, I've delirious. asked you, it's delirious. You, you've just, I've gone back to my, you know, teenage self thinking about Freddy Krueger. We would go to Blockbuster every weekend and we'd just get the Freddy Krueger movie. <laughs> yeah. I think you could get like three for $5 or something. Those were the days. You'd go with your friends and you'd like everyone would choose, have to agree on three videos. <laughs> and you'd go back and you'd have this movie night, pajama you'd, party. You'd really have to hope that you could sneak. I mean, because I was young when I was watching horror movies, you'd really have to hope that the, the clerk wouldn't like ask you, yes. Are you old enough to be watching this? Yes. Yes, sir. I am 13. <laughs> I am prepared for this I, movie. I have watched 11 Freddy Kruegers. Just give it to me. <laughs> In my case, I was like, just give me the Chucky DVD, okay? Chucky, yes. Just give it. I saw a a little meme the other day that said kids are soft these days because they've got Elf on the Shelf. But when Mm. I was a kid, I had Chucky. The freaking best. (laughs) And this is why we are the way we are, Danielle. I mean, largely, yes. Who do we speak to? I want to speak to the <laughs> No, I did ask you last time why you wrote, but this time I'm going to just tweak a little bit because you're a repeat guest. Why do you keep writing? Oh, gosh. Why do I keep writing? 
I think so long as I have questions that nobody else is answering for me, that's 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 what it takes to be a writer. If you are obnoxious enough to think nobody else has answered this question for me, I'm going to go and answer it myself. <laughs> uh, I think that's what is going to keep me writing. It's just an ongoing conversation I'm having with myself ultimately. And if other people want to unscrew the top of my head and come in and join the conversation, yes, I please. more than welcome them. Yeah, that's that's precisely it. And yeah, there is probably a little bit of ego to that of thinking no one else is put to paper, put to words what I'm thinking and feeling. So, you know, until I feel like I'm completely tapped out of that and, you know, maybe my role as a literary agent will determine that if I finally feel like I found all the words that speak to my very heart and soul and I don't need to add any more to them to the heap because I found people who are doing that well enough for me, maybe I'll stop. But until then, I'm just going to keep on going, I think. Mm. Yeah. Well, I hope you do. And I think, you know, I really like the idea of continuing to reimagine yourself and reinvent yourself and evolve. And so I think you'll always have stories to tell. Here's hoping and thank you kindly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. That has been a wild 35 minutes, Danielle, and I have loved every second. So thank you so much for your time. As have I. And thank you again for having me. I do expect that T-shirt in the mail any day now. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks, Danielle.